So Romans chapter 16. If you and I were to go gold mining for a day, anybody ever do that? Yes, that's surprising a couple of people have. We'd probably be hoping and and looking for a nice chunk of gold, right? A, a, a big nugget. Professional gold miners are very careful about the smallest gold fragments because they add up to lots of money taken together. And the long list of personal greetings and commendations in Romans 16 is typically seen as fragments of gold, little, little pieces of gold that are, that are often overlooked. But think about it, without those fragments of gold in Romans 16, there would have been no church in Rome. There would have been no epistle to the Romans. And there would have been no gospel witness in the capital of the Roman Empire. So I personally don't see these individuals listed here as fragments of gold. They are, they are gold nuggets in the church of Jesus Christ. We don't know a lot about them. We actually know practically nothing about some of them. But in verses 1 and 2, last week we spoke about Phoebe, who was Paul's courier to the church of Rome from Sincrea, where she lived. And he implored the, the saints in Rome to receive her as a sister in the Lord, as a fellow saint who was of great personal benefit to him and many other people. Paul's attention then is focused on the saints of Rome as he prepared for an eventual visit there. And he writes in verse 3, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their own necks for my life. To him not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. The word greet here Aspo, aspazomai in the Greek means to salute. And you probably have that in some of your translations. It's used frequently in this chapter to mean to, to welcome or to, to draw to oneself. Draw these people to yourself. In Acts 21, it means to embrace warmly. Look how, look how it reads here. Acts 21. And after the uproar was ceased, there in Ephesus, the riot, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed to go into Macedonia. So this was a, a salutation or farewell, farewell, really. And it was generally made by embracing and kissing. And you see that in Romans chapter 16 here, verse 16a, salute one another with a holy kiss, which was the customary way of embracing somebody in that day. Today we, we shake hands. But Paul dedicated two verses to Phoebe in, in Romans 16, the godly Phoebe. And now he dedicates three verses to a very special couple who assisted him in the work of the gospel. And they were vitally important to the Church of Rome. Their names were Priscilla, which is actually Prisca, 
and Aquila. They're mentioned six times in the New Testament, and I gave you the listings. Acts 18.2, also verse 18 in Acts 18 and verse 26. Then again in Acts 24.26, 1 Corinthians 16.19, and then 2 Timothy 4.19, which, which is interesting because that's Paul's last letter before he would be offered up as a martyr to Jesus Christ. And, and he takes the time to say, greet, greet Priscilla and Aquila. So he had them on his mind. In Acts 18, 1, it says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and he came to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and he came unto them. I said the, the real name here, the formal name is, is Prisca. It's, it's a Latin name, and it means ancient or venerable. The name Priscilla has the illa, I-L-L-A, ending on it, which typically denotes diminutive or smallness. And it lends itself to the idea of informality. It would be like Patricia being the formal name and Patty being the, the informal name. So Priscilla was much more personal. Aquila is a Latin name as well, and it means eagle. And what's interesting is in a patriarchal society, the men are usually named first, but in four of the six occurrences, of the names Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla is mentioned first, four out of six. Now that could mean that she was the more prominent of the two, or it could mean nothing at all. It certainly does not indicate that she was in a leadership capacity in the Church of Rome. The Bible does not give requirements to women for the office of an elder in leading the church. Now some in the egalitarian camp of Christianity, if you know what that word means. I'm not an egalitarian. I'm a complementarian, right? You're all that way too, right? But the egalitarians believe that God does not intend there to be any distinctions between men and women in matters of spiritual leadership. And some have even suggested that Priscilla may have written the book of Hebrews. I just want to say this to you, nobody knows except the Lord who wrote the book of Hebrews because the Bible doesn't tell us. There are different ideas and some are better than others, but we simply, we simply do not know. So let's give Priscilla the recognition that she well deserves as a godly woman who was instrumental in the cause of the gospel. And Paul cited her for that here today as we preach on it. But don't elevate her or anyone else beyond what the scripture says about her, which is not very much. But what he does says is very significant, the verses we read. So I mentioned that this couple were expelled from Rome under the Edict of Claudius, probably somewhere around 50 AD. And they met up with Paul in the city of Corinth in Acts chapter 18. So Acts chapter 18, follow me there. 
After these things, Paul departed from Athens, and he went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius commanded all Jews to depart from Rome. But here's the part I want to emphasize. And he came to them. He came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. Could you imagine living with the Apostle Paul? I mean, talk about convicting, right? Because he was the same trade, he stayed with them and, and he worked. He worked with them. For by occupation, they, Aquila and Priscilla, were, were tent makers. So Aquila and Priscilla had some things in common with Paul, and I'll spend a few minutes talking about them. They were both tent makers, which means they were leather workers. They they worked with typically with all kinds of a letter, but leather, but principally tents. Now it was customary in Hebrew culture for every boy to learn a trade. And I think that's still a real good idea, right? Because you can go to school and get a degree that may be worth nothing much at all. But if you have a skill, if you have a trade, you have that for life. So Wayne, Wayne Grudem in his commentary says, the concept of work, speaking about work, because Paul was a worker, as we'll see. The, the concept of work is mentioned more than 800 times in the Bible. Beginning with Adam in the garden, he was given work to do. And it's interesting that the first person that was said to be spill, filled with the Spirit of God in the Bible was Bezalel, the craftsman of the tabernacle. So work is not ordinary when it's done for the Lord, right? I mean, God filled this man with his spirit to do the work on the tabernacle. Now, tents in Paul's day were usually made of leather or a dark, coarse type of a goat hair. The leather tents were much more durable. And this trade provided Paul with financial assistance. So what we know about the apostle was that he was not beneath manual labor. I'll give you a couple of scriptures. Acts 20.33. Today we have a lot of people wanting everybody else's money, even in the name of Christianity. But in Acts 20.33, it says, Paul saying, I have coveted, I have not desired no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, you yourselves know that these hands, his own hands, have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. Then over in 1 Corinthians 4.11, he says, unto this present hour, this is the lot of an apostle, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted, and we have no certain dwelling place. How would you like that job? That calling. And then he says, and labor. In addition to all of that, we labor, and it's, a, it's an intensive word there, working with our own hands, physical, manual work. Being reviled, we blessed. Being persecuted, we suffered. So Paul worked hard at every Thing that he did. Turn to Second Thessalonians chapter three. Second Thessalonians chapter three, verse six.
We command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourself from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to tradition, which he has received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we ought we might not be a burden to anyone. So I have the scripture here in 2 Thessalonians. I put verse 3, 6. It should be verse 8 there. Neither did we eat any man's bread for nothing. We weren't freeloaders, is what Paul was saying. But wrought with labor and travail night and day. Those are long hours that we might not be chargeable to any of you. In other words, he's saying we, we paid our own way. We took care of ourselves so that no charge would come against us that we were freeloaders. Now, when Paul writes this, some people have surmised that perhaps the Thessalonians were expecting the soon appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, what we call the rapture of the church. And because they were focused on that, they ceased working. working and that was the reason why they were, they were just disorderly. They were not working. That isn't, I don't believe the case. I agree with Steve Lewis, who says it appears that Paul was dealing with a small group within the Thessalonian church who were exercising a self-appointed spiritual ministry and claiming the right of support from the church as a result of that. And they, they were refusing to work. So here's the, here's the points, though. Even though Paul had a right to support for preaching the gospel because the laborer is worthy of his hire, he did not always exercise that right. He worked with his hands, like Priscilla and Aquila. So what we learn from here, from this, is that we have to do what it takes to pay the bills, right? And further the gospel. And we work for Jesus Christ in the whole of our life. We don't, we don't compartmentalize our life into spiritual and then, you know, material and other things. We serve Jesus Christ with everything. What we have belongs to him. The skill to do the work. The, the physical strength to do the work. But not just to support ourselves, to support our families, and to take care of our own interests, but for the kingdom of God. Because we can use the resources that God has trusted us with for the furtherance of his kingdom. So the church today, when you think about it, the missionary task is is overwhelming, right? Go ye into all the world. I mean, that that's a job. We have a problem on the mission field. As older veteran missionaries retire, we're the younger ones filling those holes, continuing the work of translation. The church today needs bivocational missionaries to get the job done. It needs bivocational pastors to move into communities, to work a job, to plan a church, preferably with a like-minded team. And, and the, the simple reason for that is there just isn't enough financial support for everyone. So sometimes you may have to work while you're doing the work for the Lord that you believe God has called you to. But bivocational ministry, I can tell you by way of experience, is very demanding work. 
It is not for lazy, lazy people. I worked the job for years, many years, and preached every Sunday in addition. Starting, you know, or went back in Pennsylvania along with six other people, my wife included. I know how hard it is. I would get out of work at 11 o'clock at night on Saturday, pick Marie up at 11.30, go to the church to get it ready for Sunday morning. And sometimes we wouldn't leave there until 1.30 in the morning. And then we would get up in the morning and we'd go to church. And I would teach Sunday school and preach. And we did this for years because we had so few people. And some of them were working jobs. They couldn't even be there on Sunday. So you, you just do what has to be done. But Paul had the same trait as Priscilla and Aquila. And he writes in verse 3, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus. They were fellow workers with Paul in the gospel ministry. Synergos is the Greek word here for helpers. You may have fellow workers in your translation. It's the Greek preposition soon, which means beside or with, and then ergon. Ergon means work. Get our word energy from there. Just think about this. What a high honor for Paul to call someone a fellow worker. Fellow worker. Aquila and Priscilla. In Philippians 2.25, he mentions Epaphrodites as a fellow worker. Philippians 4.3, Clement, a fellow worker. Greet Urbane, Romans 16.9, a fellow worker. Timothy, Romans 16.21, fellow worker. Philemon, chapter 1 and verse 1. Those are just a few of Paul's, what whom he called fellow workers, co-laborers. Sometimes he uses the word fellow bond slaves. Sometimes he refers to them as fellow soldiers. And there are times when he refers to them as fellow prisoners. So it was an honor to be a fellow worker with Paul. And it usually meant that you were in trouble. Because he was in trouble. And that was the case with Aquila and Priscilla. But let's look at their ministry for a bit. They ministered to Paul while he was in Corinth. That's the story that we read before in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. This occurred during Paul's second missionary journey. And it, it was very discouraging, that journey, in many ways. It was really hard. He was beaten in Philippi and jailed. He had to escape Thessalonia at Thessalonica at night. He had to flee Berea. He was rejected in Athens, and then he went to Corinth. And in Acts chapter 18 and verse 8, if you turn there, it says this. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. So in spite of the difficulties, oftentimes what we will find is God brings a blessing, right? And encourages us. And Paul needed encouragement in this second missionary journey. And so it says that Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, now you could imagine that problem, the problem it's going to create. He believed on the Lord with his whole house, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Faith comes by what? Hearing 
and hearing by the word of God. Well, Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, gets gets saved, and, and that no doubt turned the Jewish population against Paul. Gospel success can stimulate satanic opposition. Paul experienced it. And the Lord reassured him with, with four statements. And here they are. And we'll read it in verse 9. Here they are, though. And this is how God reassures us. Stop being afraid. Keep on speaking. I am with you. And you will bear fruit. Thus spoke the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. For I am with you, and no man will set on thee to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, 18 months. That's the second longest stay that he stayed anywhere that I have record or we have record of. Teaching the word of God among them. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, because that's what he was referring to in Corinth, came not with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was what, what caused me to keep going forward. But notice verse 3. I was with you in meekness, it's humility, and in fear, and in much trembling. This is the Apostle Paul. The best of men are men at best. Even the Apostle Paul had his moments of fear, and anxiety, and trembling. He was like Elijah and Jeremiah on their down days. But knowing that he had trusted friends to stay with, Aquila and Priscilla, who cared for him, must have been a big encouragement during his time there in Corinth. Do not let opposition keep you from pressing on. Never, never, never give up. Never quit. We need to remember that the Lord is with us, right? The Lord is with us, and we're not alone. There are other believers. There are other people praying alongside of us and with us. And that's the, that shows us the significance of fellowship, the fellowship of like-minded believers. And it says in Acts 16, 18, and Paul after this tarried there a good while, then took his leave of the brethren and sailed to Syria. And notice what it says, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. So they were, they were kicked out of Rome under Claudius. They went to Corinth and they went to Ephesus with Paul, and then they would go back to Rome again. But it says Paul, you know, he, he shaved his head in, in Sencreate because he had made a vow and he came to Ephesus and he left them there, Aquila and Priscilla. And apparently they stayed there for some time. We don't know. It could have been several years. And they started a church in their home there, according to 1 Corinthians 16, 19, before they went left for Rome. And Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned as having ministered to Apollos in Ephesus. It says, Ephesus, Acts 18, verse 24, And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. So Aquila and Priscilla 
Paul left him in Ephesus. And this gentleman, Apollos, goes to Ephesus. And he was instructed in the way of the Lord. And we was fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught diligently the things of the Lord. But then it adds this, knowing only the baptism of John. Now think about this. Here's Apollos. He, he was a tremendous communicator. He knew the Old Testament scriptures. It says he was instructed in the way of the Lord. And he was fervent. He was passionate in spirit. Sounds like a good preacher, right? But there was a glaring deficiency in his theology. He knew only the baptism of John. And Toussaint said this in his commentary. His doctrine regarding Jesus was accurate but deficient. Deficient. Probably means that Apollos did not know about the Holy Spirit's baptism. John's baptism symbolized cleansing by God because for repentance toward God was really a, a, a message that John was preaching to national Israel, prepare you the way of the Lord. He was calling them to repentance. But Christian baptism pictures union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Romans 3 or Romans 6, 3 through 10, and many other passages, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Galatians 3, 27, Colossians 2, 12. But think about this. God had placed, sovereignly placed, Apollos in, in Ephesus. And then God brought two disciples to him to meet him there, Aquila and Priscilla, to fill in the gaps in his theology. It says here that when he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, verse 26, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, no doubt they were impressed, right? They were impressed. They took him unto them. They welcomed him, I believe, into their home and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly or more completely. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, I mentioned, in light of the coming of the Messiah. That baptism anticipated the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John said so with his own words. So that was an initial act of faith that pointed to, to the cleansing that Jesus would ultimately bring. That someone so eloquent and learned as Apollos would submit to the authority or the the, the hospitality and, the, and the, the ministry of two tent makers like Priscilla and Aquila bears witness that he was humble of heart. He was willing to take instruction from them and grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So what Apollos became was owed in part to Priscilla and Aquila. So not only did they minister to, to Paul, they ministered to Apollos. And they opened the word of God up to him. But then, he, but there's more to it than this. Not only did they have the same trade as, as Paul and, and, and helped him, probably even with some financial means there. Not only did they minister to Apollos in Ephesus, they risked their life for Paul. They put it all on the line. He says in Romans 16, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked 
their own necks for my life. John 15, 13, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. In Acts chapter 15, the church council there in Jerusalem, verse 24, Since we have heard that some of some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law. And it was James who actually was the, the chief spokesperson there. You must be circumcised and keep the law. To whom we gave no such a commandment. It seemed to us good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. And then it says this about Barnabas and Paul in Acts chapter 15. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. But here in Acts chapter 16, it's Aquila and Priscilla risking their life for Paul. And the Greek word for risk is upotithemi. And it literally means to place under the axe of the executioner. To place their heads under the axe of the executioner. They risked having their heads taken off so that Paul could live and go on and preach the gospel. How far would you go out of love for another Christian? How far would you go out of your way for another Christian? 1 John 3.16 says this, Hereby... We perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now you think about it. Jesus said it, now, now it appears here again. We ought to be willing to lay down our life for the brethren. That's startling. Because oftentimes we can't even get along with the brethren. Right? So much discord, so much criticism within the body of Christ, the church. They were willing to lay down their lives for one another. And I, I have a feeling I know why that is. And the reason it is because we have it too easy. We have it too good. But when your life is at risk and your brother or sister's life is at risk because there is real persecution and opposition, which we have never experienced here in America, you love one another as never before. And you're willing to say, no, not him, me. Take my, take my life seems that the, the love of Jesus Christ in believers works powerfully among those who are suffering opposition and persecution for Jesus Christ. We can't even love one another in our own homes sometimes. Maybe we need a little bit of persecution to draw us all together, right? To see that kind of a love. Then there's this beautiful little gem at the end of verse 4. Speaking of Priscilla and Aquila. To whom not only I give thanks, but also 
all the churches of the Gentiles. Um, that took some time for that word to get out to all the churches of the Gentiles. We don't know when Aquila and Priscilla risked their life for Paul. Many commentators believe that it was during the riot that Paul caused in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. And Ephesus happens to be the city where he ministered the longest for three years and with with good deal of success. But it says in Acts 19, it happened while Paul Paulus was at Corinth that, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, he came to Ephesus. And notice this in Acts 19. And he went into the synagogue and he spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. So this is, what is his, his message? He'd go into the synagogues. He had a natural audience there and he would reason and he would try to persuade. But it says in, in Acts 19.9, but some were hardened and did not believe, refused to believe, but spoke evil of the way, which was a term of derision concerning Christians before the multitude slander before others, he departed from them and he withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This continued for two years. Two years, he didn't quit. So that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. But in Acts 19.9, it says, some were hardened and did not believe. That's an imperfect tense verb which generally represents continual or repeated action. Listen to me. They were not hardened from birth, incapable of believing without God making it possible for them to believe through some type of ineffectual grace. That is not the case. It's not the case with anyone. They became hardened as they resisted the preaching and the reasoning of Paul, just like Pharaoh hardened himself repeatedly until God finally says, have it your way. And God hardened him. And that's the way it usually happened. The word for reasoning means disputing, dialegomai. It means trying to convince with words or speech, like preaching. Paul was preaching to them, trying to convince them with his words. He was reasoning with them, persuading. Practically, it means speaking or preaching that aims for a verdict. That's what you do when you try to persuade somebody, right? You want them to come your way. You want them to come see it your way. I, I remember one, one older preacher I heard, he, he said this. He says, always preach for a verdict, right? You're trying to get people to respond, to do something, to love one another, whatever it would happen to be. So, so Paul was like a prosecuting attorney at trial with these people, presenting evidence and that's what a prosecuting attorney does at trial. He presents evidence against an accused so that the jury would come back with a what? A guilty verdict. That's what he's trying to do. But both of these words that we mentioned here, 
persuading, reasoning, and so forth. Both of them are in the middle and or passive voice, and they that signifies to allow oneself to be convinced or persuaded. That's what you're doing. I'm preaching, trying to persuade you a certain way. Will you allow yourself to be persuaded or convinced, or will you harden your heart to that and say no? Now, you know from practical experience that not everyone can be reasoned with, right? I mean, good men are reasonable, but not all men are good. Not everyone can be reasoned with or persuaded. I know you have found that out in life. Acts 7.51, Stephen speaking, prior to his death, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. What does that mean? Their hearts were hardening. Their ears were closed. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do ye. The word resist there means to fight against. You're in opposition to what the Holy Spirit is trying to do, convincing you of the truth, convicting you of your sin, but you're resisting it. You're fighting against it. Grace is not irresistible. It's resisted all the time by people whose hearts are hardened toward God. Acts chapter 28, verse 23, Paul finally gets to Rome. Not the way he thought he'd get there. He, he went there in chains. So when they had appointed him a day when he was under arrest, house arrest, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of the Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, from morning till evening. But you know what it says in Acts 28, verse 24? And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. It's always that way, isn't it? Some will believe, and some will not believe, no matter what, no matter what they hear. Last thing I'll say about Priscilla and Aquila is that they started a church in their house. They did this in Corinth and they did this in Rome. So it says in verse five, likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So they not only opened their hearts to Paul and to many others, they opened their home. Biblical hospitality. They opened their home as a meeting place for the Christians to gather together and worship the Lord and receive instruction. When things started going bad doctrinally in the first Christian church that I attended back in the mid-70s, back in Pennsylvania, we had to make a decision because it was a doctrinal matter. And we and five other individuals who were attending that church made a decision to leave. And the only problem was that there was no really good churches to attend in that area because it was like 98% Roman Catholic or liberal Protestantism. So what do you do? New believers out on your own, you start a church, right? 
So for several years, we, we met together in the home of one of the couples who left with us. And I will just tell you this. They were precious times. They were precious years that I would, would never, ever, will never, ever forget. But they were difficult times as well. Three of the people who met with us in that home for years have gone on to their home in heaven. Hallelujah, right? I'll see them again under different circumstances. And just let me say this to you today. One day, it may be that you or your children, if they're saved out of necessity, will once again gather, once again gather in small groups in homes. That day may be coming. Many believers do that in countries all over the world because of hostility, hostility to the gospel. In China, for instance, some researchers speak of 160 to 200 million Christians who meet together in 10 million home churches. That's just, 10 million wouldn't even accommodate it. We call it the underground church. I saw that in, in North Korea, it's hard to get really accurate information out of North Korea, and especially after the, uh, the, uh, the COVID thing in 2020, when it, they put a, like a bubble around the whole country and no, no information went out. But people who did get out started talking about the intense persecution. And they mentioned one Christian family in 2009 that they knew, the mother, the father, and a two-year-old boy at that time. One of the three, probably the mom or the dad, were caught with a Bible. So they sentenced as a deterrent the whole family, including the two-year-old, to life in prison in North Korea. Whatever believers are there, risk their lives every day for Jesus Christ and one another. Hmm. Those churches... I was part of one. Maybe you will be. They are good when necessary. They offer accountability, intimate accountability. They offer intimate fellowship. There could be good teaching. Maybe there's not. We don't know. But they also lack some things that churches like this have, and churches bigger than this have. We have people who come together as one body. So there's this, this joyous collective worship that we offer up to God, which, which is edifying to all of us. There's, there's regular accountability. There ought to be one amongst the, an, another. We have special times of fellowship. We, we join our resources together so that we can support missionaries out there in the world. There are things that, that house churches can't do by limitation of number and finances. So while there's nothing wrong with a house church, if there's necessary to do that, 
There is certainly nothing wrong with larger churches. Churches this size, and I don't know what size you'd cut it off and say it you know, becomes too much. I don't know. I'm not going to get into that. But thank God for that we can come together like this every week. And that you get consistent preaching because I have the time to be able to do that. We're often in a house church. The people who's doing the teaching and preaching may have to work and they may not have the time to invest in it. So there's a big difference that way. But look, things are going to change someday, right? In our homes and in our churches. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5.1, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, this body, were dissolved, and he's really saying this, this earthly tent, you, you put up a tent and you take it down, right? It was never intended to be a permanent structure. For we know that if our earthly tent of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, in this body, right? Earnestly desiring to be clothed with our house, which is from heaven. That was Paul's, the way he looked at life, right? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. The tent maker Paul knew that earthly tents do not last long for pilgrims and strangers. And that's what we are, both pilgrims and strangers. There was a uh, an epistle written by no one knows for sure, for sure, for, for sure, to Diogenetus in the second or the third century. So this is very early on. It was a, an apologetic work, really, in defense of Christianity. And, you know, it's actually, go read it. If, if you want to understand a little bit about how he viewed the love of Christ for all men, go read it. He said some wonderful things in some very practical areas of life. But he but he read he wrote this concerning Christians. Think I put it in your bulletin or in your outline. They live in their own countries, but as non-residents. They do so as those who are just passing through. So we live in this country. We're really a non-resident. We're just passing through because our citizenship is where? Is in heaven. So they live in their own countries, but as non-residents, they do so as those who are just passing through. As citizens, they participate in everything with others, yet they endure everything as though they were foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. We are only here for a brief, very brief period of time. I shared this with Marie, but yesterday I went to Home Depot to pick up a couple of things, and there was a, a couple there with a, a little girl, and he reminded me of Emily, me and Emily. She reminded me of Emily. 
she was a really beautiful girl, blonde haired, blue eyes. And uh, I walked over to them and, and I, uh, I said, well, your daughter's really beautiful, beautiful little girl and big smile on their face. And I says, you know, I used to come here with my daughter when she was that age. And I described a little bit about Emily and he was busy with some things and she was paying real attention. And I said more or less to them, um, take care of her, right? Love her. But you're only going to have her for a little while. I remember being there Friday, Saturday after Saturday when Emily was, she, when she was two. And now she'll be 32. It goes just like that, right? So love your children, right? Teach them well. Invest your life in them so that they can grow up to be beautiful in the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like this couple that we read, Priscilla and Aquila. Phoebe, whose name meant radiant. She became a shining light for Jesus. So that's my prayer for you. You let your light so shine by men before men so that they may see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. That you would raise your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Nothing is more important than that. No parental task that you have is more important than raising your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Can't guarantee their outcome of all of that, but do it. Do it as unto the Lord. And pray for them. Right? Pray for them. You'll never stop praying for them as long as you can pray. They give us reasons to pray for them. That's not against my daughter. She's God just God just blessed her with blessed us with her. She's so compliant to the word of God. Father, thank you for this time together, for this lesson about this relatively unknown couple. Priscilla and Aquila, who were instrumental in Corinth and instrumental serving Paul in Ephesus as well, starting a church in their own home in Corinth and starting a church in, in Rome. What workers they were for Jesus Christ and what love they had in their hearts for the Apostle Paul willing to give up their life for him. Lord, we just passed over quickly these little statements in Scripture. But they are so important. They give us a glimpse of how you were working in the early days of the Christian church and the spread of the gospel in the Roman Empire. Help us, Lord, as best as we can through the means that you have given to us and by the grace of the Holy Spirit in our life to be like a Phoebe, to be like Priscilla, to be like Aquila. So that our testimony, Lord, would, would be known among even other churches. That's hard in this day. The word spread there, Lord, from mouth to mouth. What a wonderful witness they were to Jesus Christ. Power of God in their life. I pray for each one here that we too likewise would be a powerful witness 
in a very dark and evil day for Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen.